Hello and welcome to Healing From Within. I am your host, Cheryl Glick, author of the newest book in a trilogy, A New Life Awaits, Spirit-Guided Insights to Support Global Awakening, and it shares messages from spirit that our challenges are not economic, political, or societal, but simply a disconnect from our inner soul wisdom and true being. And I am delighted to welcome Dr. Alan Buchanan, author of our Moral Fate, a provocative and probing argument showing how human beings can, for the first time in history, take charge of their moral fate. Hello, Dr. Buchanan, and thank you for joining us on Healing from Within to address the question of tribalism, the political and cultural divisions between us and them, which is an inherent part of our basic moral psychology. Yes, that's correct. I think that it's it's in our genes that we are groupish beings, that is, that we tend to divide the world into us versus them, and also to sort of think that we're superior to them in some way. But that by itself is not so dangerous. It's when tribalism becomes extreme that it's dangerous, and I think it's a threat to democracy. It definitely is, and we're seeing it play out all across the world right now. Alan, as listeners of Healing from Within are well aware My extraordinary guests and I share intimate and life-challenging ideas in the search for knowing who we are as both spiritual entities or beings having a physical life and how to merge this duality so we can evolve and find the best within ourselves and so we can transcend our fears and limitations, learning more about the human condition so we can create a prosperous, healthy, and happier life experience. In today's episode of Healing from Within, Dr. Buchanan will show us how many scientists link tribalism and morality, arguing that the evolved moral mind is tribalistic. Any escape from tribalism, according to this thinking, would be partial and fragile because it goes against the grain of our nature. Alan Buchanan offers a counter-argument. The moral mind is highly flexible, capable of both tribalism and deeply inclusive moralities, depending on the social environment in which the moral mind works. And I would totally agree with that. Alan, I always love to ask my guest to think back to their childhood and remember a person, place, or an event that may have shown them or others the interests, lifestyle, or work they might embrace as an adult. For I believe within the heart and soul of the child is the life journey and destiny waiting to be revealed. So think back for a minute. Yes, I can, I can think back to a, a kind of pivotal moment I grew up in the American South at a time in which uh, we had literally an apartheid society. There was institutionalized racism top to bottom. Blacks were not allowed to marry whites. Blacks were relegated to inferior occupations. They had separate amenities, which were always inferior. And I grew up in that culture as a white child, and I imbibed the racist ideology. But at a certain point, I began to see that this was all mistaken and that the people that I'd looked up to, my parents, my pastor, my teachers, were really feeding me some very destructive ideas. 
And once I began to pull back the veil, I realized that the only way I was going to overcome the, the disabilities of this kind of racist thinking was to get out of that environment and expose myself to different kinds of views. And I did that by getting a scholarship to go to Columbia University as an undergraduate. And it made all of the difference in the world because I was exposed to a completely different cultural environment. And it threw into high relief just how distorted my upbringing had been. And well, from you know, then on, I was very, I was very suspicious about going along with the herd, about simply uh, buying into whatever uh, the cultural influences were around you. And thank you for saying that, because I grew up exactly the same way in Brooklyn, New York, uh, with adults and teachers who didn't have an open heart or soul. I was born a sensitive, a sensitive sensitive, an empath, and a, me, a medium. And I knew spiritually uh, there were dimensions of reality uh, that were not being shown to me. And I could not understand why the adults just were doing the wrong thing. And I remember bringing home, uh, I, I was in the gifted class, and I remember bringing home uh, a friend from the class. Her name was Cheryl, like mine, and she was black. And I heard someone in the building say something behind us. And, and I was very upset about it. And, and my mother was a little, um, unnerved by it also because she wanted to do what the neighbors wanted. She was into that mindset also, as you just described. And I'll tell you another story that disturbed me greatly. Uh, when I was in Pennsylvania as a camper, uh, my parents came to visit me, and they took me to a restaurant, and we walked in, and uh, the place was empty. And the owner said, we have no tables for you. And I said, hmm. to, and I said to my dad, the place is empty. I must have been uh, 13 years old, something like that. And he said, no, we're leaving and it was because we were Jewish. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so, uh, I couldn't even phantom because it's not in my soul, spirit, and energy to see people as other uh, than spiritual beings having a physical life and the goodness in them. Of course, I sometimes see the negativity. And, and that has to change by their making the changes necessary. No one can change anyone. But we certainly can work on these ideas that you and I experienced as young people because they're totally not appropriate in an evolving world and society that's reaching a spiritual tipping point at this time. And if we don't get it right, well, the consequences are going to be catastrophic. So let's go on to what is tribalism and why do you say we can't be morally tribalistic by nature because quite recently there's been a remarkable shift from tribalism to inclusiveness, which you and I had as a child. We already had it. <laughs> yes, let me uh, contrast tribalism with polarization. Sometimes people think these are equivalent. But I don't think they're the same, and I think tribalism is much more dangerous. Polarization just means that our differences on social and political issues are serious and growing. But you and I might have serious differences on some policy matter, say, 
yet we could still respect each other and be willing to listen to each other and to bargain and compromise and meet in the middle. Tribalism isn't like that. When you're in the tribalistic mode, you not only disagree with the opposition, you despise and even demonize them. The fact that some people think their political opponents are evil explains the popularity of the most extreme conspiracy theories. For example, the QAnon theory that Hillary Clinton and other prominent Democrats are pedophiles who extract rejuvenating hormones from the blood of children they kidnap. Now, that's pretty extreme. It's one thing to well, say that's, that's, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> that's kind of ridiculous. That's, a, well, that's an extreme case. Very but, extreme. But what's common to tribalism is the idea that you lump all of the people you disagree with together. They are all alike. And you believe that they're all either incorrigibly stupid and misinformed or irredeemably corrupt and even evil. Now, if you regard someone that way, then there's no point in listening to the substance of what they have to say because what they say is not credible. When you're in the tribalistic mode, you regard those you oppose as literally unreasonable, as unable to reason. You can't reason with them because they're stupid or corrupt or insincere. And that means you dehumanize them. Why? Because part of what it is to be human is to be rational, to be a being that can be reasoned with. Now, if enough people think that many of their fellow citizens aren't fully human, that's very bad. For one thing, it means democracy won't work. But let me give you two examples of this way of denigrating the other. First, an example of regarding those you disagree with politically as incorrigibly stupid or misinformed. Cheryl, have you heard the term frequently used by people on the right in conservative media, the term libtard, L-I-B-T-A-R-D? Have you ever heard that? Well, I, I guess I have. I guess I wouldn't pay too much well, attention to it. Well, the idea is that all liberals are, are mentally deficient, right? Libtard. All liberals are mentally deficient. Now, if they are, there's not much point in talking to them about complicated political issues. So you can just dismiss them, not listen to them. Here's an example of regarding those you disagree with as irredeemably corrupt or insincere. The late Rush Limbaugh repeatedly said that liberals, all liberals, don't really care about immigrants. They just want open borders because they believe immigrants will vote Democratic. Now, that's very convenient for him, isn't it? Because it means that he can avoid well, engaging. Well, let, let me just say this for a minute. We, mm-hmm. should, ne- we should never say all. We should never say uh, that everybody in a group thinks the same because I know yes. for a fact that we're all unique, individual right. soul beings with different life paths and different destinies and here to improve our spiritual energy by gaining greater compassion and love. And that means accept, allow, and surrender to each person having the right and ability to share their talents with others. So anyone saying to me personally, Mm -hmm. all liberals are this, or all right or left uh, extremists are this, even within those groups, there are those who think a little differently and can't be completely absorbed into the insanity. And it is a form of insanity. All extremism is a form of corruption and violence and ill-thinking and ill-will, and it's not who we are as soul beings. 
We are here to have a positive, expansive life of love and cooperation. And that word cooperation is lost in all these extremist groups. We're only competition and denying everyone else the right to live according to our Constitution. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, this is really the big put your, problem. You put your finger right on it. But you give yeah, an example. Let's go to the example yeah, well, you gave of gun control. Okay, so someone yep, who's for yep. gun control. So you're going to say they're a socialist, and then the mass yep. murder of pre-birth human beings, uh, abortion. Okay, they're a pro-choice. Exactly right. yep. They're a pro-choice people who believe that there still needs to be some regulation, and not allowing anything to go. And there are pro-choice mm-hmm. people, uh, not pro-choice. Uh, uh, pro-abortion people who still might believe that if there's incest or rape or um, emotional uh, damage, that that perhaps an abortion early on is a good thing. So there's no one way of looking at all these things. And yet people who are into the depth of tribalism, they cannot see that. Is that so? That's exactly right, Cheryl. I'd like to elaborate on that because I think you really put your finger on it. Tribalism is a kind of denial of individuality in two ways. First of all, it's what you just said. It lumps everybody that you're opposed to or disagree with together. They are all alike. And that's very disrespectful because there always are differences among people for the reasons you said. The other way in which tribalism is an assault on individuality is that it requires you to be completely loyal to your tribe. You can't disagree at all with the main tenets of your group. If you do, you're a traitor, you're expelled. So it it really forces you to be a herd-like animal. So on the one hand, it, it forces extreme conformity on you, vis-a-vis your group. On the other hand, it homogenizes everybody else that you're opposed to as all being exactly alike. And that's just simply toxic. That's really a very dangerous way Absolutely, absolutely. All right. You know, as a Reiki energy master teacher and medium who knows we're more than our physical life, and this time and place are but one dimension or reality our soul is experiencing, I think tribalism and identity politics, as we have seen it evolve over the last 15 or 20 years, is perhaps a result of social media or political need to take power completely. It's not honoring a two-party system. It will destroy democracy and lead to a totalitarian Nazi, communist, or fascist leadership, which we saw in world before World War II. And we in the United States are not too far away right now from that. And England has also lost so many civil liberties and there's great strife and rioting and looting and lawlessness based on racial inequality. But you want to know something? I don't think we're systematically racist anymore. I have seen the progress in this country over my lifetime. And as I say, many more people are spiritually engaged now there's so much intermarriage. If you turn on television, it's all it's all emerging of all different people and races and cultures. So how is this tribalism hanging on? And what are we going to do to really limit it? That's the, that's the million dollar question. Look, I think 
I agree with you. I think we have made progress in the dimension of inclusiveness, that is, mm-hmm. as regarding you know, all persons as part of the moral community. But the problem is that progress is very fragile. It was hard won. To get there, we had to have a lot of different factors in place, and it's really only been in the last two or 300 years that there's been a lot of progress made in that direction. Now, the progress is fragile. Why is it fragile? For two reasons. First, because there is part of our evolved moral nature that's tribalistic. I think our moral nature is dualistic. I think that we we have the capacity for being tribalistic, but we also have the capacity for inclusiveness. But which of those capacities is dominant depends very much upon what the social environment is like. Now, in, in the West, roughly, in the last 300 years, we've created a social environment that's more friendly to inclusiveness. But it hasn't happened everywhere. No. And even where it has happened, it's always subject to the threat of regression. And here's the second reason why it's fragile. There are people who have an interest in stoking tribalism Mm. because that's their route to power. So they play on this aspect of our moral nature, this tribalistic aspect, and what they do is they cue us with various kinds of threats, most of which are manufactured, you know, the great danger that this group poses to us, etc. And that triggers these tribalistic responses. Right now in the United States, I think we're in a period of regression. I think we, we had made some progress toward overcoming tribalism in the dimension of race and sexism and otherwise, but I think it's under assault right now. I absolutely agree, and I'm terrified, and so are so many other people. I'm just, I'm seeing such a regression. It's like before World War II. Uh, I mean, when you said non-humans, I'd like to clarify that term spiritually, and I need you to tell me what you mean by non-humans. Non-humans for me mean that there are people who have incarnated into this life who do not belong in the earth environment and were misplaced here. Uh, They are spirits or souls who belong in another life climate or place or uh, there's life beyond this life in many, many places. So they're not human and they do great damage uh, and they can't be merged into uh, this way of life because uh, they're damaged souls. Uh, You would consider someone like Hitler, a non-human. Okay, now what do you mean by non-human? Yeah, well here's the tricky thing. Uh, I think that there are individuals who who repudiate all that's valuable in humanity and they become uh, in some sense less than human. But the danger is that of, of using the term, you know, they're not human, they're just animals, because we've seen how using terms like that can be used to justify treating people who are really quite innocent badly. I mean, this is, in fact, what the Nazis did. They said that Jews and Slavs and others were less than human, and they used that to justify treating them in really horrible ways. Now, I think that there are people who who repudiate their humanity and act in inhumane ways, but what I fear most is those people attaching the label less than human to people like you and me, right? Uh, Yes. To to ordinary people who are are psychologically whole. Yes, who are psychologically and morally 
uh, in a different space than they are. You're absolutely correct. All right, so the non-humans well, I were talking me. about were a form of life that um, it was not meant to be on this earth at this time. And what you're talking about are people who right, are right. treated not non-human because uh, they think differently, and they, these right. groups want to exterminate them with genocide right. or other. Right. I understand. Okay, let's go let on me, to... If, if yeah, if I may, let me mention a few more features of tribalism. Okay, okay. I've already okay. mentioned this feature of of homogenizing, saying all of the people you oppose exactly alike, and this tremendous push for conformity, this herd-like mentality. But there are other features of tribalism that I think are really important to focus on, and one of them is that in when you're in a tribalistic mode, you tend to think that you're in the most extreme circumstances, that, it, that everything, all of the conflicts are linked together in a kind of Armageddon scenario, so that every conflict, as say every political conflict, is really for the highest stakes. Let me give you an example. The most recent book by Sean Hannity, uh, have you seen this? Do you know what the title of it is? Uh, no. America on the Brink. It's, it, the, the title is Live Free or Die, America on the Brink. Now, I think in one sense, that's true. We are at a sort of watershed area. Yes. But if you convince everybody that we're in a kind of supreme emergency, that we're in a zero-sum uh, zero conflict, you know, what I win, you lose. There's no middle ground. It's a conflict that's zero-sum that's for the highest stakes. Once people get into that mode, they'll be willing to violate all sorts of moral principles because they think it's justified by it being a supreme emergency. So you hyper people into this frenzy of fear, and then they're willing to do almost anything. And then tribalism becomes a kind of moral race to the bottom. So that's yes, another that's not good. And you and I are not about that. You are, and I are about finding the common ground and cooperation to uh, temper these extreme positions, because yeah. it's the only way we are going to uh, save our democracy and our constitution right. and our founding father's vision for the blueprint for this country and for the world, which has improved in many ways. But still, when I watch television and I see how primitive and war and how women are treated in different places and children and mm. disease, and I see we haven't conquered the important things with our technology and wanting to have electric flying cars, but we can't still save people and children from dying from starvation and disease. I see we need so much more to do to, to come to be like you and I, are suggesting not to go to those extremes. But le I'm interested in your reaction to let's talk about mask wearing versus anti-mask wearing during the COVID-19 and why we're having all these moral conflicts. Because this sort of shows the divide and how power is being used politically to undermine what you and I are talking about, the common ground the realization we're all human and unique and deserve the right to be respected for our opinions without being threatened or told, I'm going to hurt you if you think this. And, and I've been told that. <laughs> I'm going to hurt yeah, you well, I, if I'm you so think you this. I'm so glad you brought up the example of, of, so, of mask wearing. I'm so let's glad you talk about that, that for a minute. A of, yeah, let me, let me say a little bit about mask wearing, but first with a little preparation. 
I want you to think about what's going on in tribalistic discourse. On the surface, it may sound like people are arguing in the sense of giving reasons and somehow trying to get at the truth. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think the tribalist discourse is all about signaling and sorting. Let's take sorting first. It's sorting the world into us versus them. Yes. And it's signaling that I'm one of us, one of our group, I'm not one of them. So it's all about sorting and signaling. And I'm afraid that what happened with mask wearing is that it became interpreted as a signal. I'll give you an example. I was standing out in the, in the front of my house the other day talking to a neighbor, and I was wearing a mask because he was standing fairly close to me. And he said all of a sudden, well, I see you must have voted for Biden. <laughs> so he was, you know, it was a little bit like at a football game where you wear the colors of one team, the team you support, yeah. and the other guys wear the other colors, right? That's signaling your membership, your loyalty, your allegiance to a group. Now, I didn't view myself as doing that. I wore a mask because I thought it was prudent. In that moment, in that moment, yes. In that situation. Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, and that's a great example that, you know, when you hear people ranting on either extreme extreme right-wing or left-wing media, you might think that they're really engaged in some kind of communication that has to do with getting at the facts or the truth or arguing or giving reasons. They're not. What they're doing is they're mainly sorting people in us versus them and signaling their allegiance to one group rather than the other. And, you know, if you're in that kind of situation, you can just say something and automatically people will overinterpret it as a signal that you're not one of them, right? You mentioned this earlier, right? Suppose that uh, you say that you think that uh, the Second Amendment is okay as long as it's understood to allow serious regulation of firearms. Well, among some groups, if you the minute you open your mouth and say anything positive about the Second Amendment, you're automatically branded Out of as their a wacko, gun-toting right. crazy, right? And and similarly, if you if you say that you think that abortion should be legally available under certain circumstances, yes. right? Certainly cases of rape and incest. Immediately, some people will say, well, you don't care about babies. You want to, You don't care about human life. You're a monster. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of people not really listening to the content of what you say. They're looking for a signal. And once they detect that signal or think they do, then nothing you can say will, will affect their attitude toward you. I understand. I want to thank you, Dr. Alan Buchanan, for bringing to the public a discussion on a topic that is affecting all aspects of life in this changing and challenging world. And uh, in this knowledge that we're talking about is the key to better interactions and solutions to our moral fate and our survival. To learn more about evolution and escape from tribalism, go to MITpress.com or Amazon.com. In summarizing today's... The title title of the book is Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism, and I'm the author, Alan Buchanan. You can find out a lot about the book and how to order it at the MIT website, MIT Press, or you could just order it directly from Amazon. And you can also go to my website at the University of Arizona Department of Philosophy, 
and find out more about me, other books I've written, and also about this book. And Cheryl, I want to thank you very much for an excellent interview. All right, then. Now let's summarize for our guests while you listen to this. In summarizing today's episode of Healing from Within, we have tried to rethink moral progress to learn how to take charge of our moral faith. And Dr. Buchanan, as all of us, should want to understand how moral progress comes about, especially progress towards greater inclusion and away from overt tribalism, and also want to understand the reverse process, how people whose moralities are inclusive can still regress to tribalism. Dr. Buchanan writes, some moral philosophers believe that it is our practical rationality, our ability to reason about what we ought to do that makes us so morally special among all the beings that have moral standing. Others think it is something more basic the ability to distinguish between what is desired and what is good, or between what one wants to do and what one ought to do. Later on, Dr. Buchanan writes, If we come to know enough about how these sorts of words and images interact with the moral mind to produce behavior that is physically violent or undermines the minimal mutual respect that democracy requires, shouldn't we take steps to prevent this from happening? If certain exercises of freedom of expression are especially dangerous as a result of the evolved moral mind's potential for tribalism, shouldn't that fact influence how we understand and institutionalize freedom of expression. Dr. Buchanan and I would hope that listeners simply begin to become aware of the possibilities of understanding tribalism and inclusion as issues that have both positive and negative realities depending on our awareness of self and ultimate potential for human development. I am Cheryl Glick, host of Healing from Within and author of A New Life Awaits, and I invite you to visit my website, CherylGlick.com, to read about and listen to metaphysicians, scientists, spiritualists, educators, medical professionals, and those who seek an understanding of the human and divine condition. Shows may also be heard on webtalkradio.net and dreamvision7radio.com. Thank you.